This evening I'd like to reflect upon the theme of emotional wakefulness. In this tradition, in this practice, we're encouraged to cultivate really as much as possible an inner steadiness and calm and equanimity to nurture within, us, within ourselves a, a sense of poise and balance which can receive all the waves of change in our life, a kind of poise that can receive and remain steady within many of the storms that we meet both inwardly and outwardly. To discover a kind of poise in which we don't find ourselves shattered and overwhelmed by the waves that come. I think we can often hear and very much respond to the wisdom of that. Simply because in our own experience we really know the painfulness of having our hearts broken or we know the painfulness of being a victim of emotional chaos. Sometimes, well probably all of us at different times have felt the very deep painfulness that comes when we get lost in those dark and intense spaces where we feel almost consumed by anger or by fear or by hurt or resentment. And sometimes the obsessiveness, the, the darkness of obsession. So we find ourselves, I think part of us very much, responding to that invitation to find poise and balance. And yet at the same time, I think we can feel a little puzzled about how we find the interface between equanimity and emotional death. I think sometimes it almost seems to us as if emotional death and serenity are somehow even almost incompatible or opposites or polarized. And as much as we fear and try to avoid emotional chaos, we also very much value emotional death. I think we know that it, are, it is our capacity to feel deeply, to love passionately, to care fully, that it is these capacities of our heart that really bonds us on the most essential level with other people, with all of the world. Our heart's capacity for celebration, for rejoicing, for grieving, for responding with tenderness. This is the world of our heart. Sometimes the very feelings that we connect with inwardly almost remind us of what it is actually to feel fully alive, to be intimate with all things. And it's not unusual then to wonder whether this other capacity to find equanimity and balance 
may simultaneously perhaps be somehow a loss or a sacrifice of emotional death, and naturally we're reluctant to do this. I know this paradox is something that I, I struggled with at times in my own practice. You know, I think particularly practicing in Asia, you know, many of my, many of the teachers that I came across were, um, you know, rather grim people <laughs> at times, you know. I mean, you probably come across some of these pictures, you know, with some of these images of these, you know, meditation masters. Some of them look like they've never cracked a smile in their whole life. Yeah. You know, and it's kind of hard. I know sometimes I used to have this mind, you know, that one of the trips that used to do, and it's distractedness sometimes in the midst of a monastery, would be, you know, like it's hard to find myself trying to imagine, you know, if this person at the front of the room ever kind of, you know, broke into laughter or, you know, rolled around in delight. And the truth was, actually, just don't know. This practice is very clear, that this path, it's very clear to me, is, is not about transcending or subduing our emotions. <coughs> Nor is it a practice of, of in any way discounting or ignoring both the power and the value of our emotional life. I think that balance and equanimity does not suggest or does not imply the absence of emotion. I think much more equanimity suggests the possibility of discovering emotional wakefulness and also emotional freedom. And it may very well be that real emotional wakefulness is emotional freedom. When we look at the landscape of emotions that we go through in our lives, we see actually that it's really universal. That the spectrum of emotions that we experience in our lives is not a spectrum that knows any boundaries. That grief and sadness and joy and love and fear and compassion, they are feelings that live in the hearts of all human beings in a way there are kind of shared language. Living in a fragile world, in a fragile body, in a mind that is at times fragile, every single one of us will experience at some point in our life loss and change and separation and death. Moments of happiness, moments of disappointment, moments of anxiety, moments of uncertainty. Emotion or this landscape of our heart actually continues to teach us about our interconnectedness and our interdependence. We can reach out to someone who is grieving simply because we know what it feels like to grieve. We can comfort someone who is hurt or sad or fearful simply because we know the language of those feelings in our own hearts. 
we can feel compassion simply because we know what it feels like to be touched by compassion. It is in truth this emotional depth that actually connects us with one another. When we are lost in emotional storms and emotional confusion, we don't actually feel that connected. When we're lost in emotional intensity, rather than feeling connected, we actually feel more often than not very isolated. We see often that when we get really lost in emotional storms, they bring the endless powerful stories and chatter and that we easily become contracted, obsessive, preoccupied, isolated. And actually when we are lost in emotional intensity, there are the times actually when we often feel the most alone in our life and the most suffering. Lost in that contractedness of emotional confusion or intensity, we also very rarely feel actually very free or very intimate with anything outside of the boundaries of our own struggle and intensity. There is a big difference, I think, between emotional intensity and emotional wakefulness. In our practice, part of our practice is actually we are really learning to attend very closely and very deeply to the language of our heart, to our emotional life, to find the creative power, the depth and the sensitivity that is actually made possible through our emotions. We're learning the wisdom at times within our emotions. And we are learning to leave certain things behind. And I think what we are really learning to leave behind, to let go of in this practice, are the feelings of contractedness, of helplessness, of fear. And we're learning to let go of some of the sorrow of being lost and isolated. I think often we do feel very, actually very helpless within our emotional world when it's very powerful. And sometimes I almost believe that, it's, that we can't be mindful and in touch with our emotions at the same time. You know, we think we can be mindful of lots of things. You know, it's not so hard to be mindful of our bodies, you know. We can be mindful of sounds, can't we? We can be mindful of sights. We seem at times to be a little bit mindful of thought. And yet when powerful emotions come, we often feel, oh, anything, anywhere, but not here. You know, I can't be mindful within sadness. I, I can't be mindfulness within fear. I can't be mindfulness within anxiety. We see when strong emotions appear, often they have this kind of, we often have this kind of experience of them being sort of like an avalanche that crushes everything in their path, including our capacity to be present, to be mindful, to be awake. And it is actually because our emotions can be so very, very powerful that we are really invited to discover what it means to be mindful and free 
within our emotions. Not about subduing them, but learning how to let go of our helplessness and our contractedness. On the eve of his enlightenment, when the Buddha sat underneath the Bodhi tree, he really sat in a way in the midst of great emotional storms which have come to be called Mara, or the forces of entanglement and illusion. And Mara appeared in a whole lot of different forms, you know, of anger, of hatred, of greed, of doubt, of lust, of fear, of, of uncertainty. These are actually familiar visitors, I think, to all of us. And Siddhartha's response was not one of denial. He didn't sort of get become agitated and frenzied or filled with resistance. But rather's response was to turn towards all of these very powerful forces and to say, I know you. That capacity to say, I know you, is not a story of denial, but a story of freedom. That tells us actually that here too, we can find sensitivity, we can find spaciousness that rejects nothing and that embraces all things. Those words, that very deep capacity to say, I know you, it's an expression of inner confidence and trust. They're not shallow or dismissive words, but really embody a very profound attitude of openness, of welcome and balance. They really lie at the heart of the path of awakening. But nothing that can ever touch us in this world is unwelcome that everything that we can feel and that we can experience is worthy of our wholehearted attention and presence. A spiritual journey, a, medita a genuine meditative journey, it is a sacred journey. It's a journey of diving very deeply inwardly. And in, a, in that inner descent, we meet, or we learn to meet, both our dragons and our angels equally. Because both of them actually have a great deal to teach us about freedom. As you discover here, meditation is a kind of inner descent a spiritual descent. And in that diving deeply, really nothing stays hidden from us. We certainly at times meet our angels, and we also at other times meet our dragons. We may find moments where there's even great stillness and great beauty and great joy and great peace. And very often, too, when we dive beneath our chatter, we really discover how much our chatter camouflages our heart. How much our chatter is a layer of busyness, a layer of occupation, that at times camouflages or conceals our heart. 
I mean, sometimes, as we get a little bit underneath that chatter, what we do encounter, of course, is every single feeling in the emotional spectrum. We meet anger, we meet fear, we meet loneliness. <coughs> sometimes we meet every fragment of resentment we have ever harbored in our life. It parades through our consciousness, you know. Every, everything that we argue with, everything we've ever felt resentment towards. We also actually, and one of the most wonderful discoveries, is discover, to discover that we don't have to get rid of it. And that we don't have to be afraid of it. We don't have to tame it. We don't have to overcome it. That we actually can find the inner poise, the balance, the openness, that really does recognize the transformative power of many of those meetings. That in that every every emotion has a companion lesson almost. You know, the companion lesson of frustration is patience. The companion lesson of resentment is forgiveness. The companion lesson of, of anger is loving kindness. And more and more I think we do begin to discover that it is the companion lessons that are truly transformative. We learn a lot in turning towards our dragons as well as our angels. We learn a lot about freedom and we learn a lot about having faith in ourselves. All of us do encounter in our life and in this practice what the Buddha called the wilderness of the heart. That tumultuous world of feeling, of emotion, of doubt, of fear, and fear and doubt are the biggest ones, in a way. You know, most of the rest of the emotions in our spectrum are all kind of different manifestations of fear and doubt. And fear and doubt, quite frankly, they kind of come with the package of being identified with the sense of self. You know, they're sort of part of the same package, you know. If you have a belief in self, you're going to have fear and doubt. That's why, like, they don't, they're kind of inseparable. So learning to approach, in a way, fear and doubt is actually learning to approach many of the belief systems that we have invested in or assumed about who we are. What we do encounter in the wilderness of our hearts is a powerful and sometimes really habitual emotional patterns that entangle us. Sometimes they've been formed over a lifetime. I mean, we don't get that many new emotions, do we? I mean, we've made a lot of visits. <laughs> you know, how many, how many aversion visits have you made in this lifetime, you know? How many greed visits have we made? You know, how many fear visits have we made? We sometimes we get a lot of news, new information, or new emotions. And sometimes actually they, they, we see how strongly our entanglement 
has been rooted or built up actually through repetition, sometimes rooted in the past, that we relive over and over in the present. Sometimes we almost see family lineages of emotions. I mean, I don't know what it's like in your family. My family has lineages of emotions. You know, like my father is a really impatient person. You know, you listen to him, he gets very frustrated, he gets pretty impatient. You listen to him, his father was kind of like a bigger version of that. You know, and I'm sure it goes back generations, you know, and like impatience is one of, you know, been a huge part of my practice. Um, and I, I, I have, I'm very optimistic, you know, and very hopeful actually, because I share, I see it kind of, you know, getting diluted of the generations that my children are much less impatient than I am. You know, so we can, but we often see these lineages of emotion that we've inherited or that we have been rooted in our own experience. Something that we, uh, we discover really, really early on in our practice is that none of our emotional patterns or complexity are going to be be dissolved by willpower, resistance, or avoidance. Primary lesson. We learn this really early. Sometimes we don't like to learn it, you know, so we keep doing that dance over and over of willpower, resistance, and avoidance, but the lesson doesn't actually change, you know. They don't work any better the 500th time you try them than the first time you tried them, actually. That's, it's an interesting lesson. So we learn that quite, quite early on. And yet sometimes one of the, the kind of shadow side of learning that willpower, resistance, and avoidance don't work is actually this kind of appearance of resignation or despair. <coughs> you know, that, that is often the kind of outcome. You know, we, we do our heroic battles, we think that's all we have in our repertoire, you know, that we think that's the whole of our repertoire of response. You know, so when they don't work, often we see this creeping despair, this creeping resignation or sense of hopelessness, thinking that, you know, oh yes, you know, this is forever, forever. I will always be like this. I will always experience I'm always going to lock, be locked into this. And yet, despair is um, its a kind of sadness. And it's also, of course, totally untrue. You know, the fact is, the reality is, is that we are actually not the slightest bit powerful. The reality is that we are actually not the slightest bit helpless. That all of us hold the capacity for very profound transformation. And if we stop struggling with that which we most resist, we have the opportunity to look and to explore how we can relate to that which we resist so that it turns into something which no longer needs to be resisted. We also really understand that just because something has a long history, it doesn't imply an equally long future. That mindfulness and awareness are really are concerned with present moment transformation. And they are empowering. 
You know, mindfulness, in my understanding, is always seeking a path of freedom. It is illuminating where we are and it is revealing what is possible. It is exploring the pathways of possibility that we may be able to walk in each moment. And then we learn, actually, through mindfulness, to give birth to a present and a future which are both deeper and freer than just a repetition of the past. This is especially pertinent, I think, especially valuable as we approach our emotional world. Because our, I think our emotional world not only feels powerful, but at times to us it feels dangerous. You know, there's probably no other dimension of our life that involves so much thought, so much energy, so much preoccupation. You know, we see like small emotions give birth to small thoughts, don't they? You know, a little irritation about whether we get the right cup at lunchtime. Few thoughts, they're gone. Hmm? Big emotions, big thoughts. And lots of them. Big emotions give birth to actually obsession preoccupation, contractedness. The flood of agitation that very often colors our way of seeing and relating to the world. And we tend, as Jenna alluded to this morning, to be incredibly dualistic in response to our emotions. How often we divide our emotional world into these categories. You know, we've got the good guys and the bad guys. You know? The positive ones, the ones that we call good, the ones that we call bad, the ones we call negative. Acceptable and unacceptable. Now the moment that we ever deem an emotion as being negative, what do we do with them? And, and you know, being aware, what are the emotions we deem to be negative? They're mostly the ones that see we, we see to be, or consider to be pretty unflattering to our sense of self. You know, they don't win us a lot of applause in the world. So we tend to deem as negative anger, greed, loneliness. Our response then is, how do I get rid of them? How do I flee from them? How do I control them? How do I subjugate them? I think we are very often tempted to internalize the social and at times spiritual taboos that surround some of these emotions. We look at them as being shameful. You know, like we should be ashamed because we experience a particular kind of feeling. As if they're a personal flaw or imperfection that we have to hide or eradicate. And yet what happens when we attempt to cut off what we call negative emotions is that we're also inclined to create a very dangerous schism within ourselves. That our bodies often store those emotions we reject. That the emotions we think we have subdued very often return to shatter us in the moments we're most vulnerable. And this dualistic value system we hold around our emotions of course conditions our relationship to them. We try and avoid, get rid of, 
the negative, the anger, the greed, the fear. Or we get caught in this story and we try to explain them. You know, we do a lot of explaining around emotions, you know. Like, how I ended up like this, you know, and where this came from, and how I, you know, what caused me to be here. I think sometimes in our anxiety around emotions, we're, we're almost tempted to believe that if we can find an explanation, that the explanation is going to be a solution, you know, and that's going to make them go away. You know, and yet lots of people have explanations about how they ended up like this. You know, personally, perfectly reasonable explanations, totally right ones, and also discover it doesn't make them go away. The emotions we value, we have a different relationship, don't we? We search for them, dream about them, pursue them, try to maintain them. We want to be happy, we want to be peaceful, we want to be loving, we want to be generous. And when those qualities feel inaccessible, rather than being simply present with what is, we start prowling the world, looking for the right sensation, the right person, or the right experience that we invest with the power to make us happy, to make us loving, to make, to make us people. And you know when we do that, we kind of sell ourselves, I think, into a sort of emotional dependency that's based upon projection. You know, rather than touching that reality that the source of happiness, the source of love, the source of peace actually lies within our own heart, we search for it outside of ourselves. And we see that even the search for what we call positive emotions can become a perilous journey because we disconnect from the moment. We disconnect from the simple truths of the moment. We disconnect from ourselves. Our culture is hugely into, as far as I can see, the externalization of happiness. You know, if you have this, if you get this, if you become this, if you reach this, you will finally be happy. And I think in that externalization of, happy, uh, of, of happiness, we often mistake intensity with emotional wakefulness and depth. And I think this is dangerous, you know? It's almost as if, as if, you know, the, the sort of overload of impressions and sensations in our life, you know, born of that go for it, go for it, get this, become this, you know, find this. It's almost as if it numbs our capacity for simplicity. And then it takes more and more for us to feel emotionally awake. You know, so our horror movies get more horrible, you know. And violence becomes more prevalent. You know, our roller coasters get higher, you know. Seeking that kind of wakefulness has come to feel more and more inaccessible. And that we've mistaken for intensity. You know, I read an interview with someone, you know, just before Bungie jumped over the Grand Canyon. And somebody, you know, quite rightly asked them, you know, why? (laughs) Why are you doing this, you know? I mean, most of us wouldn't actually think of bungee jumping over the Grand Canyon. It's been a very pleasurable experience, you know. Actually, I think it's probably pretty terrible. 
And, and you know, he answered that question, why it makes me feel so alive. Uh, you know, Joseph Campbell, I think, I think he, he said it to me, he says, I think what we're really seeking for in this life is the rapture of feeling fully alive. Our capacity to care, to sense, to feel deeply, of course, is given great significance and meaning because they do bring richness and intimacy. They nourish our spirit. And it may not actually be emotional intensity that brings meaning, because emotional intensity is dependent on transient experiences and sensations. But I think emotional freedom brings a great deal of meaning. meaning. And this is something we discover what it's for ourselves, what that means. Certainly emotional freedom is not found in succumbing to waves of intensity, certainly not found in obsession and preoccupation. And nor is emotional freedom found in trying to get rid of, avoid anything. I think finally we come to realize that emotional freedom is actually found in understanding. That being a victim, being a master, overcoming or succumbing, these are very fragile identities that aren't really talking about openness of heart. We are talking about how to stand still and to say, I know you. To stand still amidst the whole spectrum of our emotions. To let go of some of the busyness and to say, I know you. And it is hard for us to let go of the business, but it's a really good idea. <laughs> you know, recently I heard someone say, you know, if you find yourself in a hole, it's a good idea to stop digging. You know, and I also think this is really a kind of apt expression for meditation, you know. Find yourself in a hole of obsession or dwelling, preoccupation, good idea to stop digging. Learn how to stand still. I mean, stillness is very rarely our first response to emotional intensity, but it might be a real key to emotional freedom. To find that quality of unshakable balance in the complex of our emotional landscape means, first of all, that we take the step of questioning the assumption that the world and the 10,000 things in it intrinsically holds the power to enrage us, terrify us, depress us, or make us happy. If we can acknowledge that genuine emotion, genuine happiness, begins in our own heart and mind, then it means that we really do question that assumption. Because if we don't question that assumption, actually, we become a prisoner of the 10,000 things. We delegate to everything outside of ourselves the power and the authority to govern our freedom and life. I met someone once who had the experience of being mugged. And after they were assaulted, they talked about the gauntlet of emotions 
that they went through, from rage to anxiety, to feelings of powerlessness, to wanting vengeance, and how often these emotions kind of followed one after another. And she certainly came to realize that actually the mother was in charge of her life. She thought about him, obsessed about him, feared him, and really opened the door for that person to govern her heart. As she began to explore the depths of those feelings, began to accept them, to befriend them, it was the beginning of learning to let go of fear. Nohavel, Tech poet once said, you know, hatred has much in common with desire. With both come a fixation upon others, dependence upon them, and in fact a delegation of a piece of our identity to them. The hater longs for the object of her, her or his hatred, just as the lover longs for the object of their love. As we begin to probe a little bit beneath the concepts we hold about anger and sadness and fear, we also do see that emotion is not a fixed or preordained state that arises out of nowhere. That all emotions involve our bodies, they carry a feeling tone, they pick up memories and associations and thoughts, and that whole process is so quick. It's so rapid that it takes a remarkable mindfulness really to be present within that unfolding process. And sometimes we need to find the doorway into understanding our own emotional process. And they begin in the moment, just as emotions do. You know, contact happens. We contact the world through our sense doors. Sight, sounds, touches, taste, sensations. Our body has sensations, our mind has thoughts. Much of what we contact, in fact everything that we contact, has a feeling tone of being pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And feeling tones, the feelings that we perceive, are actually often overtaken by underlying tendencies. We see how aversion follows in the footsteps of the unpleasant. You know how craving follows in the footsteps of the pleasant. How delusion, you know, the skip into fantasy, into disconnection, follows in the footsteps of the neutral. That is the beginning. And how when, we, how when those underlying tendencies come into motion, how the whole world of association, thoughts, memories, how we write a story. You know, when, when we hear that, every, you know, the average person has 67,000 thoughts a day, you know, do you know what that means? It means that the average person writes a book in their mind every day. You know, we're always writing those chapters, aren't we? And it's like with every emotional wave, it's almost like we're writing a new chapter. And sometimes, you know, would we really want to read our own books? 
You're going to put a lot of that in the unknown of that one again, you know. That chapter, you know. How many time rewrites has that one been through? And, but sometimes we can try to be a little bit more mindful of what kind of chapters we're writing in this moment. Because we live our story. You know, we really inhabit our story. We, we come to believe in them very, very strongly. And the less mindful we are, the more we come to believe in the story of the moment as being the truth. Those are the places, actually. There are many places we can learn to open the doorway into understanding our emotional world. This is the doorway of the body. You know how they impact on our body. This is the doorway of contact. Noticing those moments when we contact, sight, sound, feeling, sensations, and the process that begins. There's the doorway of being mindful of our stories. Are they really the stories we are sentenced to live in that moment? Or are there other possibilities? There are all these doorways that actually open for us when we are present, when we are really attending. Emotional intensity, I think, is very different than emotional freedom. Intensity is about being lost and contracted, and we struggle a lot. You know, that's the nature of intensity. That's how sometimes we notice the difference. It's because of the kind of struggle we go through. When we're very locked in that kind of intensity, there's a lot of defining, a lot of self-defining. We say, I am, you are. What is emotional freedom? It's not struggle. It's the capacity to listen deeply. Feelings, aversion, fear, uncertainty, doubt, may still arise. It doesn't mean they don't arise. But we neither conclude nor do we struggle and they change into something else. That's the nature of it. They change into something else. Instead of feel, you know, it's so interesting that the very clinging, identifying with what we must fear, resist, or try to avoid, is actually what makes it stay around. It's actually what makes it linger. Learning to listen is also learning to release. And we're not stunned or helpless. We learn we can actually bring a very calm, a very alert, very sensitive presence into that unfolding process. We introduce the factors of interest, of investigation, of curiosity. What is this? You know, sometimes we just stay with that question of what is this? We see when we're struggling a lot how much self-definition there is. You know, we say, I'm angry, I'm fearful, I'm, I'm self-conscious, I'm inadequate. And when we insist on being someone, that is our story, we become defined by our conclusions. And of course, we tend to then conclude about everything else around us. The friends, the enemies, the allies, the opponents. I think freeing ourselves, learning how to free ourselves from self-definition is very much at the heart of this practice. To find the freedom of not concluding. When we're no longer inclined, actually, 
actually to conceptualize ourselves. A lot of healing does begin. The awakened heart is a heart that feels very deeply, that loves well, that treasures forgiveness, treasures compassion, that also welcomes the whole spectrum of emotion. That awakened heart is very much a part of what we cultivate and turn to in our practice. And then I think very often the very creative power of emotion is available to us. We discover, you know, as Rumi said, that the only lasting beauty is the beauty of the heart. We take just a couple of moments quietly to finish. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.